session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dulaqui, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook. To get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number, 310 0555. Getting to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is The Blind Owl by Sader Hedayat. The Blind Owl Bufekur by Sader Hedayat. A colleague of mine um, highly recommended his work and uh, that book specifically. So looking forward to reading it and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Already Enough by Lisa Oliveira, Already Enough, A Path to Self-Acceptance. And this book was, as the title might imply, Already Enough, A Path to Self-Acceptance, a very compassionate, uh, even loving book. The way she she wrote the book, you feel like you have a, a companion as she walks you through this journey uh, that she outlines in the book of trying to get towards path, uh, self-acceptance, a path to self-acceptance. And even throughout the book at times, she'll stop and say, okay, you're doing great. And you know, you feel like someone is working with you and walking with you along the path. And so I felt this very loving feeling as I read the book. And actually, I think it allowed me to really tap into my own experiences as well. So um, I'll get into the different things, different things she discusses in the book. But I found myself actually connecting to my own pain, some of my own experiences. Um, there are some exercises, techniques, things that she suggests, and I tried doing those as well. And I really actually enjoyed that process. So uh, I think it was a nice book. I, I like the title. That's what drew me to it, Self-Acceptance and this um, theme of being enough already. Uh, Lisa Oliveira is a writer and a therapist herself, and so as a therapist, I can relate to seeing in clients this sense that it's such a common theme of not feeling like we are enough, and I can relate to it too, that it can show up in so many ways. And so um, I think it's so important. Sometimes you just want to tell people that they are enough, but it's more complex than that. But really, you see it so often that there's the sense that I should be different or I'm not enough in this way or that way or if, um, if I changed in this way, then maybe I would be, but not right now. And she does quote uh, Carl Rogers, a quote that I really like, the curious paradox is that only when I accept myself as I am, then can I change. I kind of paraphrase it a bit there, but essentially that theme that actually once we accept ourselves as we are, then it actually becomes easier to work on ourselves to actually improve in, in some aspect. Because when we, let's say you don't like something about yourself and you say, I hate this and I have to change it because it's so bad and unacceptable, it actually makes it harder for you to change. For example, with addiction, if you have more shame, if you relapse or let's say have a bad experience with whatever your addiction is, 
the more shame and the more you beat yourself up, the more you're likely to use again or have the behavior again the next day or next night. Because if you are beating yourself up and feeling so down, and now you're having these big feelings, if you've learned to cope using that substance or behavior, you're more likely to turn back to it. So contrary to the mindset that you have to be so hard on yourself and almost self-punishing in order to go towards goodness or greatness, what we actually find is that if you love yourself with compassion, yet also responsibility, that's going to help you to improve in whatever area of your life that it is. So this theme of self-acceptance, it's not just to feel good in the moment, it's actually because it can help us live a better life for ourselves. The first, uh, there's really, there's three parts to the book. The first part talks a lot about our stories. And so whether you realize it or not, but you have a story about your life and about yourself that you have internalized, that you have internalized from a very young age. And most of us don't realize it's a story because it just feels like reality. And it's not until we reflect a bit, get some perspective, often get outside perspective, can we recognize that what we think to be just reality, the way the world is, the way that we are, the way that other people are, is at some level a story that we have internalized, created, co-created with the world around us to then believe, and then we live with and within that story. And so what does this look like? For example, in an extreme way, if your caregivers were abusive, physically, verbally, in whatever way, you likely are going to internalize some sense of shame about yourself that I'm not good, I'm not lovable, I'm not okay, something or things about me are bad. And also that people can't be trusted, that people are going to hurt you, the people that are supposed to protect you hurt you, so how can you expect strangers to be good to you? So your expectation is to get hurt. You might also um, mix the feelings of love and pain, or someone that loves you also hurts you, and think that that's a sign of love, or you feel loved even if it's hurting you because you think that's how it's supposed to be and it feels familiar. So those are just some of the types of themes in a simplified way that you might internalize as a story in how you then feel about yourself and the world and feel about people. So there's also therapies or types of modalities of therapy, things like narrative therapy, because we recognize that we have this narrative of our life and ourselves. And also when we think about humans as a meaning making machines, which means that we don't just experience a series of events and then keep track of all the events separately, we create a story or a meaning to those um, themes that come up or the data we collect about life. So the first part of the book is walking us through this journey of trying to get in touch with your stories. And if you're listening, you think, I don't know if I have stories or if I know what my stories are. The, The truth is that you have them, you're just not aware of them. And so there's that Jung quote about If you don't know your unconscious or what is in your unconscious, you will live it out and think that it's fate. That's what we tend to see. So if we have that individual I was mentioning, this person who has experienced abuse as a child, they might seek out individuals for relationships that 
fit that story. So who might be abusive themselves, prone to anger or treating someone with disrespect, putting them down. And then it will just confirm that story that, see, I'm unlovable. People don't treat me right. And also that people can't be trusted. People are bad. Look how mean and bad people are. And so sadly, it will confirm this story that we already believe to be true, but we will just think either it's fate or it's luck, or really it's just the reality of the world. And you see this happen time and time again. And it happens in ways that we often are not aware of. Obviously, we don't seek out someone abusive intentionally. And sometimes people will say, well, how can you say I was attracted to that person because of this, uh, you know, whatever reason? They didn't tell me that, which is true. On a first date, people don't tell you I, I, I can be prone to be abusive or uh, aggressive or violent in some way. They're not going to tell you that when they first meet you. But this is where our unconscious can pick up on things that we are not aware of. What attracts us to people, even I ask people, you often will hear someone ask someone what, what attracts you to them, which I think can be good to think about. But really the large pull of it is unconscious. We're not aware of what attracts us often to someone. We might think it's these reasons that we say, but very often it's actually about these other things we might not be aware of. It reminds me of studies they do where they, for example, ask someone, they show them two pictures, let's say a heterosexual male, they show them two pictures of females and say, which one do you find more attractive? And they say the one on the left. Now, without them knowing, they switch the photos and they show them the one on the right and say, okay, well, why did you think she was more attractive? And most of the time they don't realize they've switched the photos and they give reasons. Well, she has nice eyes, I like her smile, something seems friendly. So we can see that they're not even aware that they have switched who they're attracted to, but they come up with reasons. And that's, again, our brain being meaning-making machines. This is another way that it happens is that when we do something, we even interpret why we're doing it and justify it. We are actually, in a way, our, uh, our own attorneys, so to speak, that we come up with reasons to defend and justify why we're doing what we're doing to make sense of it, even though it might not actually be the reason why. Or they've done studies where, for example, people taste jelly or jam, let's say, uh, fruit jellies, and they are then asked to pick the ones they like the best. And they find that when they're just asked to pick the ones that taste the best, most people do as well as the judges who, ta uh, who um, let's say, uh, perform the tests for these types of contests, who are professionals in tasting the differences between them. But when you're asked to explain why you like them, you actually become worse at it. So when we experience something as pleasurable, when we try to explain why it's pleasurable, we're actually often not that good at it. So if I say, why do you like this song? You oftentimes can come up with some reasons, but you might not be aware of what's drawing you to that song. So coming back to this realm of relationships, we often don't realize what's drawing us to people. And very often is, it is things that we are not conscious of, not fully aware of. So in this first section of the book, she helps you look at where your story comes from. Things like, of course, your family being a big part of that, if you've experienced traumas, but also the larger society and culture plays a big part in our collective stories and the ways that we internalize different things. So helps you think about that and then different ways your story might show up. Things like thinking you're not good enough, perfectionism, people-pleasing, imposter syndrome, and so different ways that we can have certain stories that we then 
internalized and it becomes so much a part of us that we don't even realize they are stories. And so that's why it can be so powerful to first even recognize we have stories and then to understand them, because without knowing them, we play our role and we cast people to play the roles we are familiar with and continue the same stories from our past into our present and into our future. But if we become aware of our stories, we can rewrite our present and our future, which is much easier said than done. It takes work. Just the awareness is not enough. But without the awareness, we can't change the stories that we have now internalized. And to give you another example, for me, some kind of imagery of this concept, because these stories are not just we've internalized them to hurt us. They've somehow helped us make sense of and survive our childhood, survive the early part of our life before we internalized it. So if you had a parent that was abusive, you've learned to be very sensitive, let's say, to the moods of other people or becoming aware of it or trying not to upset them, which can make sense because you could get really hurt and likely it was unpredictable when it would happen. So you would be vigilant to see when it might happen. And now you might no longer be in that home with the abusive person, but you'll still carry that type of vigilance when you interact with people. And the imagery I've thought of is it's like if you grew up in a house with fire and there was smoke, you've learned that you had to crawl when you were walking around your house, or at least crouch when you walked around your house. And so if you were doing that all the time, you're crouching everywhere. It made sense. It helped you survive because if you walked all the way standing up, you would choke or suffocate or wouldn't breathe comfortably. So you've lived your life crouching and crawling around thinking this is just okay. And that was actually the best way to survive. But now you're no longer in that home with the smoke, but it still doesn't feel safe to walk standing tall, to walk around fully upright because you have experienced this sense that that is unsafe. It's not okay. And so that's what all of us are doing to a degree. We're crawling around or crouching around in certain ways, not realizing that it is actually no longer unsafe to stand up tall fully, to experience certain things, to express certain things in parts of ourselves, to create certain types of relationships or to feel and recognize that we are lovable, that we don't have to be afraid to stand up tall. So we can understand how the story got made and what we did and how it actually helped us survive and to live our lives in a way that was okay back then. And we can see why it's scary to challenge that because the feeling is that if I stand up, I suffocate or I choke, it feels very not okay. So that was the first part or some thoughts on the first part of the book already enough by Lisa Oliveira. In the next segment, I'll get into later parts of the book of what she advises and how she shares. We can try to rewrite or create new stories for ourselves. So let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. back. Continuing the discussion on the book Already Enough by Lisa Oliveira. In the book, she also shares her life story in different uh, pieces, especially the fact that she was adopted. And that's part of her life story. And she also shares how that contributed to the stories that she made about herself and her life. Uh, fears of abandonment, also a fear of she might be abandoned again if she wasn't good enough in certain ways and the ways that that created an anxiety 
and, and themes of, imp- uh, of perfectionism that she had to always be good or perform well. And so um, I appreciated throughout the book her vulnerability, her openness, and this sense of we that she had. Often when you read self-help books, there can be two different ways that the author talks. Sometimes it's a talking to you because I've already solved these issues and I fixed it. And sometimes it's a we in the sense that I'm learning these lessons, showing you what I've learned, but I'm still going through it too. There's a we-ness. So sometimes people like the I because it's the sense that we're listening to someone who's figured it out. So they struggled. Often there's that story of the person who struggled, figured it out, and now everything is great and they you know they're doing so well and they fix it and they never have to worry about those things again and now you can too if you follow their model and so of course lisa Oliveira shares that she's grown and gone through a lot of things through her hard work and therapy and uh, and all the things that she's done uh, but you do get the sense and she makes it quite clear that she still deals with these things even though she's learned certain ways to deal with with things and cope with things and rewrite her stories she's still prone to go back to those old ways. So there was this sense of her own vulnerability, her own process and journey that also I think added to the book and gave it even more this sense of warmth that she was there with you as I was reading it there with me, reading these different things and understanding uh, how, how they were affecting me. So I appreciated that as well. Um, she talks about lots of different things. One thing I wanted to show is about affirmations. So Affirmations are one of those things she even says they can often be considered very woo-woo, like this kind of like new agey or um, type of a thing where it just feels a little bit empty for some people. And it can, you know, I, I working with clients will mention at time affirmations, but it's very much a um, not a one size fits all. For some people, they feel very uh, weird or not genuine and awkward and cringy. And so they just, they don't want to do it at all. And that, that could be for you where you're at. That's fine. And I think I've been there a lot of the time. And even if you want to do affirmations, oftentimes books will suggest them, or they might say, say this, but I think that often doesn't work because it has to be very genuine to you. You can't say something to yourself that feels not genuine or not meaningful. It also has the value for you to be trying to affirm something. And it's not that if you say it to yourself a few times, it's going to change your mind about the thing, but it can have an impact, especially when you consider that most of us have such a harsh voice, this inner critic or inner voice that can be so critical and mean to ourselves. It can be good to balance that and hopefully try to reduce the the inner voice that's negative completely as much as we can, but to also add and balance with more positive things that we say towards ourself. And unfortunately, similarly, how we at times might struggle to take in compliments from other people when they say nice things, we might be that way with ourselves too. So many people will feel like people give them compliments and they're like, oh, God, they're saying something nice or they don't know what they're talking about. But someone says something mean and it sticks and we're like, oh yeah, they said this about me and that's probably true. And so we might be the same way with ourselves. We will beat ourselves up, say mean things to ourselves, but if we try to say something nice, an affirmation, a positive thing, it could feel fake or phony. So that's also something to be aware of. It's not just the type of technique that might feel woo-woo or not okay for you, but the sense that if you are not feeling a positive feeling towards yourself, it could be hard to internalize or accept positive words from yourself to yourself. And so as I read this book, I'll, I'll share a little bit about 
something I experienced. For some reason, I just started saying I love you to myself. I know it sounds strange, but it's something I, I never had done something like that. And I kept doing that. And so I've been doing that the last few days over and over again, just inside my own head. And it actually has felt quite nice. And so this is not my suggestion that you say that same thing, but I'm sharing that because I tend to feel a little bit like it was a little bit uncomfortable doing affirmations. It doesn't feel real. And I still don't know if I like a lot of them. A lot of them don't feel good for me, but for some reason, this I love you has been a nice feeling. Um, I thought about how I actually give a lot of words of affirmation to loved ones, uh, compliments, kind words, loving words, but I wasn't doing that to myself. And it sounds strange, but we do have a relationship with ourselves. So that's just something I actually went through in the book and have continued, and I, I think I'm going to carry with me going forward, but it was kind of interesting. I never thought of myself as an affirmation person personally, but so far I've been doing that the last few days. We'll see how that goes. Um, so as I mentioned, the first part of the book is about identifying our stories, but again, identifying them doesn't mean they just melt away and change and completely we rewrite them. It takes hard work to move forward. And so she shares that four types of uh, four supportive mindsets, she calls them, that she thinks are important for trying to rewrite our stories and cultivating new stories are, are these four that I'll share with you now. So one is mindfulness. So that makes sense because we have to be very aware of our stories and not only aware of them in an abstract way, but then recognizing how they show up in our lives. So mindfulness is good for us in general to be more connected to our experience, more aware of our feelings. Something we do have to be mindful of about mindfulness is that it doesn't mean you're just going to feel good all the time. Sometimes people think if you're mindful, that means you're peaceful. It can lead to that sense overall, but when we're more mindful, we're also in touch with negative feelings. And often that's why we're not mindful is we don't want to feel some of our feelings. So we'd rather uh, distract ourselves in a variety of ways to not feel things. So we need to have mindfulness. Also curiosity. And curiosity to me is an interesting and very important one because that's related to having a non-judgmental mindset. And it brings me or brings to mind the question of why. Because as therapists actually we're often discouraged to say or ask why because why tends to sound judgmental. So when I you tell me I did this yesterday and I say why it can come off judgmental, but there's very clearly to me two types of whys. One is a why that is judgmental, a sense like, why did you do that? That sounds wrong or bad or stupid. But there's also a why of curiosity of, I want to understand to know more about you. So when you say, you know, I do this every morning, I say, oh, I wonder what makes you do that? Or why do you do that? And then you tell me about what it means for you and how you feel. I'm like, oh, okay. So now I know you better. And so when we approach with curiosity rather than judgment, that why is much more about understanding in a non-judgmental way rather than a why that's judging. So curiosity is another mindset that she says is very important, uh, a supportive mindset towards creating these new stories. Self-compassion so that we approach in a loving way towards ourselves. I was just talking about saying I love you to myself. We need to have that loving sense for ourselves as we're trying to create these new stories. And then lastly, aligned action, meaning that we take actions, behavior steps that are aligned with what we're trying to do with taking care of ourselves, 
with making that kind of progress. So she says, she says these are the four supportive mindsets towards creating these new stories. And so in the second segment, explore some things like that. Also a sense of safety and willingness that's very important to create these new stories. And in the third segment of the th- book, the third part is called Getting Free. It's about how we can start to internalize or create these new stories, which is really the, the hard part, the hardest part, which really is kind of like a, a lifelong journey. It's going to be something that we have to keep working on. Um, and when we think about stories, it reminds me of things like posture or when we talk about a comfort zone, because often we can become conscious of something we're doing, a story, a behavior, and something we want to change. But when we get stressed or if we're not mindful, actually, we go back to the old way of doing things, even if it's painful. Kind of like with your posture. You might learn that you want to uh, change your posture. I've actually thought about this. I've seen that I've been hunching. And so right now, I actually straightened up a bit. When I'm not conscious of it, I go back to that more um, unhealthy way, but that's become a comfort that's not good for me. So I have to be very mindful of making that change. It's not easy. And so we find that when we're not mindful, we go back, but also when you're stressed. And this is why even we see people break habits or go back to a bad habit when they're feeling more stressed, we're more likely to do that. But so she goes through different things you can do to try to make those kinds of changes. One thing I liked is that there's a part here about responsibility, taking responsibility. So as I mentioned this book, you know, we talk about self-acceptance, you're already enough. There's a lot of warmth, there's a lot of empathy, there's a lot of compassion, which I think are really important, critical for making a change, for um, for getting in touch with ourselves and then trying to create something different for ourselves. But it doesn't just mean we focus on our pain or how we were hurt. We have to then take responsibility or recognize it is now our responsibility to make something different. So uh, there's different types of quotes that basically have this theme that what's happened to you is not your responsibility. So how your parents, let's say, treated you was not your responsibility. But now what you do with that is your responsibility. Or your history is not your responsibility, but your present and your future is. What are you going to now do with it? And often it's a process that we see because we're generally not in touch with these stories. We're also not in touch with our pain very often. And so the first step often, let's say, in therapy is getting in touch with that pain. And this is why we say you might feel worse when you start therapy before you start to feel better, because you're often getting in touch with feelings that you were unaware of or were avoiding because they were painful or hadn't really let yourself feel because they were painful or didn't have the space to. And so in therapy, often people will feel worse. And so if we stay stuck there only, this is where we can get fixated in a type of victim mindset. So we just are thinking about and feeling how we got hurt and we don't want to stay there, but we do need to go there first. And unfortunately, oftentimes when people see someone going through a healing journey and they're getting in touch with their pain, they quickly want them to get out of it because it makes them feel uncomfortable. It makes them feel some feelings that they don't like. And so they might even accuse someone of being a victim or playing the victim when really it could be part of their healing journey. So as is the case with a lot of things, it's something we have to try to differentiate. Am I choosing to stay stuck in this victim mindset? Or is this part of my healing journey that I first need to get in touch with the pain 
to heal it. And so that's something we have to think about. And as an individual talking to a loved one, I would say err on the side of giving people space to go through that healing. Don't quickly accuse them of playing the victim or wanting to be the victim or choosing to be sad. I see this often where someone is depressed and people tell them, oh, you want to be sad because I've seen you be happy or it's, you know, you've been sad for a while or your life is good. And it's much more complex than that. So we have to go to that pain first, which means we can feel in a way like a victim because we were the victim of that past. But staying there makes us the victim mindset that we don't want. We have to then take responsibility for our healing, which can be very hard and it's a process, but that's up to all of us to to recognize, okay, I've been hurt in this way, I have these wounds, but now I need to heal them and see if I can create a different story for myself, which is exciting, it's wonderful, we want that, but it's also scary. When I talk about the comfort zone, I've mentioned how it's in some ways can feel like a wrong term because comfort sounds good. I'm sitting in this chair, we want it to be comfortable so that it makes me feel okay. But in our lives, when we have a comfort zone, it's not that it's healthy for us or good for us. It goes back to that idea of the posture that you get used to, but it's something that we've grown accustomed to. And because we don't want or we fear change or things that are different, we just continue to live within that comfort zone. But it leaves us unhappy, unsatisfied, and unfulfilled in our lives. But we choose that comfort over the anxiety of the unknown, of putting ourselves out there, of potentially failing or getting rejected, or all the things that come with actually doing something different. So we have these stories that we've created and formed in our lives, and it makes sense that changing them is good for us, but changing them is very difficult. Even if we're willing and feel safe to, as she talks about those two things, to do it is very difficult. Um, but also we can be afraid of, of going there, of making that change, that not knowing what's going to come on that other side. But I hope we all will take that journey because we've internalized a story that isn't our life story. It was a story of our childhood, of our early life, but it doesn't have to be the full story. And we don't have to be that same character in our whole life. And especially when it comes to things like internalizing a sense of unlovability or not being good enough. Hopefully we can recognize as the title of the book says, you don't have to change. You're already enough. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the last segment, I wanted to talk about well, sadness in a way, but reading this book already enough by Lisa Oliveira, A Path to Self-Acceptance, there was this theme of connecting with our pain, connecting with with sadness and, and accepting our feelings, mindfulness, uh, having that curiosity. So it involves accepting what we're feeling. And, and I was also thinking of the book Bittersweet by um, Susan Cain that I read a few weeks ago. And in that book, she actually talked about the Moonlight Sonata. And if you know that song, um, I would sing it. I wouldn't be worried about violating any kind of IP rights because I don't think it would be recognizable. But um, if you know the song, it has a, a slow, deliberate kind of uh, way of going. And then the way I was thinking about it is that there's parts where, as Beethoven wrote it, I don't want to try to under, say I understand his process, but 
you he could have chosen a more happy note or chord to go to but what actually makes the song so beautiful to me i know earlier i was talking about how we think we know it makes something nice to us i hear that but when we when i hear that song it's those painful or those sad types of notes that he chose that makes it so beautiful and meaningful and that's why it reminds me of that book bittersweet it was in that that book for a reason but this sense of how those bittersweet feelings she was saying she really likes and people tend to like but to me that's what life is about is those bittersweet types of feelings where relationships are always going to have some bittersweet or even the experiences we have in our relationships will be bittersweet when you think about breakups and things you go through and even in a relationship you're still in there are some pains there there is something that has hurt you in that relationship even if it is loving if we're being genuine and uh, i tend not to connect very well with obviously toxic positivity or these things that are always happy always good because they don't feel real to me and i think that's true for most people that there's something lacking something that is not genuine when we just focus on the good or we think we have to always be positive you know and people say think positive be positive only focus on the positive no bad days those things never have resonated with me and as as i've gotten older more and more i recognize that they're lacking the depth of our human experience and so when i think about this song moonlight sonata and if you haven't heard it recently i hope you'll go listen to it tonight or today whenever you're listening to the show and see what i'm talking about where he's going through these progressions and then it's going to change to a new chord and sometimes we uh in american and western type of music will call minor chords the more sad chords and the major chords are the more happy ones so i don't know exactly the music theory of of that song but the sounds are kind of sad and so i thought about how if he went to a happier sound it would be less beautiful and less meaningful and so in our lives the same thing is true when we're choosing the next notes in our life it's not to intentionally choose sadness or pain but to not go away from the sadness or pain in our personal life and experience and our relationship with ourself and in our relationships with other people in our close relationships when you are connecting with a loved one and i i deal with this a lot with individuals but especially when i'm working with couples of bringing up a conversation and this sense that well if we think of the song of their life in that moment the song is let's say pleasant or happy and they might introduce what feels like a sad note there and that's what people can often feel well me and my partner were just having a nice day why would i ruin it by bringing up something sad or why would i tell them something that i think they won't like you know saying that i'm either unhappy about something or i didn't like something they did or said or didn't do or say and why would i why do that and so that's where i feel like this analogy is very fitting that that's what likely will make your life and then all your also your relationship more beautiful and meaningful is to let those sad notes play as well to let them unfold when they unfold in the song that is your life and your relationship together as i i've talked about before when you 
talk about these issues, people will say, well, I tried to bring it up to my partner, but they said either they were in a good mood and I ruined it. So why did you bring it up today? Or they were already in a bad mood. Why did you add this to it? And so it, it points to this fact that when we want to avoid something, it's never going to feel like the right time. It never will feel like the right time to do something that feels wrong, at least feels wrong to us in the moment. You'll never want to do the thing that makes you feel a little bit bad. And so we have to recognize this bias that we always will have. In that moment of day to day, we tend to want to go towards a thing that feels good, to only go to the happy notes, to only go to the things that will feel good to us in that moment. But when we recognize the bigger picture and we see that what will make life meaningful and often what actually leads to health or a more meaningful life often won't feel good in the moment. It is the more uncomfortable thing. You can stay at your job or take that job interview. Well, almost always it'll feel more comfortable, even if you're unhappy, to stay at your job. But it could be the right thing to take that risk into that unknown and, and see what happens. And so we have to, to face that. And so coming back to the analogy with couples, yes, if you don't bring up the sad thing or the thing that might be a little uncomfortable or difficult to talk about in that moment you might both feel better you might not feel great because you have something in the back of your mind that you know you didn't share but overall it feels better and sometimes i imagine that we've all been there where you want to bring up something something's bothering you and you ignore it or you and you make a joke or you make light or do something and you're both laughing and from the outside it looks so nice look at these two people enjoying each other's company but the truth is something bad is happening. And not to go to some really dark example, but it's something like the tree is rotting from within. You know, the tree looks nice from the outside, but there is something that is brewing inside that is hurting and harming it. If it doesn't get taken care of, it is, if it doesn't get removed. And so we often take that route that feels good and looks good on the outside or is easier for us and go forward. Something I tell couples is when they say, well, why would I say something that hurts my partner's feelings? Because it seems like it's more loving to not say that. And it's similar to when I tell parents that sometimes you do things that your kids don't like, or you don't give them a certain comfort because you know it helps them grow and they need to experience that or let them face a challenge on their own. It's the same thing in our relationships that what feels good in the moment sounds good, but when we want to grow, we have to sometimes feel bad or allow ourselves the space to feel bad. So it's not that you tell your partner something because you want to hurt their feelings. If that's your intention, then yes, don't say it at all. And sometimes that is people's intention. But what you want to come from is a place that your intention isn't to harm, but it's to help. So it's not that you are saying this to your partner because you don't love them enough. It's actually because you love them and you love your relationship so much that you don't want to avoid saying this thing which can hurt it if it is not said. If this issue does not get dealt with, it will just build. Resentment within you, the issue will continue. There could be something that you're not pointing to. So it unfortunately will continue to harm you and the relationship if you don't bring it up. And not only that, by bringing it up, you can remove this bad thing, but also you can make your relationship stronger and closer and healthier. What we see is that partners that have gone through difficult times together, things from outside and inside together, 
in a way that is not against each other, but on the same side, they create a stronger relationship than if they had not gone through those things. I think we can call it an anti-fragile system. I might be using that wrong, but this sense that it's actually the things you go through make it stronger, kind of like an immune system too. By facing certain challenges, facing certain pathogens, your immune system actually becomes stronger than if it never faced those pathogens. And so our relationships are the same thing. We have to go through things together. And sometimes the, the thought can come, oh, then maybe we should create problems so that we go through things. Well, it's like, no, life is hard enough. It's going to create problems for you anyway. You don't need to fake them. What you want to do is authentically face them or genuinely face the ones that come up and don't avoid them, which is what we tend to do. So you don't need to create more fake problems for yourself. Life from the outside and then within the relationship also, you'll have enough things that come up that you need to work through. And that's what you want to do. And what I always think of is in practically every relationship, there are these unhad conversations that we haven't had yet that need to be experienced to actually make the relationship better. Some past pains or resentments that we never brought up, some feelings that we never shared with our partner, something that was nagging us from before that we thought we would just deal with on our own or some big issue that we maybe discussed but haven't really fully resolved and have let go of. So there almost always is something there that you can talk about and work on, but we are avoiding so much. So here are some encouraging words to not avoid those conversations, to recognize that you're saying them. It's an act of love to bring something up. And it could reframe the way we look at it. It's not that you're complaining to nag or to bother the person to ruin their day, to mess things up. And, you know, we have to think for ourselves: if our partner can't even tell us something they're upset about, that's something on us that we have to think about. Yes, it depends on how they bring it up, and that is their responsibility. But if you want to be in a healthy relationship, you have to accept that part of that is that you're going to get it wrong sometimes, or things are going to come up, and you want your partner to tell you rather than to hold them in. And so if you have a relationship where that unfortunately is the culture, we don't bring things up, that's a really bad thing. And so if you think you're praising yourself or your partner for being so patient and never saying anything, it's actually hurting your relationship and not helping it. But so coming back to this example in imagining the song that is your life, yes, happy notes can feel good. And you might think, it's better to always play the happy ones. And if you have a choice and you're in a pause in the music, you might think, well, it's better to pick the next happy note rather than a sad note or a sad chord. But often we recognize that if we avoid those sad ones, we don't create a very meaningful song together. And now I'm kind of getting to like a dark place of thinking your song might end sooner than it would if you include the unhappy or the sad notes as well. And that's what a relationship is, a melody that includes happy and sad, a experience that truly is bittersweet. So if we avoid those sad notes, it's not that we're creating a happier life. You're creating a less meaningful one and also one that actually might not last as long. So I encourage everyone to be open to expressing those things as they come up, the feelings that they experience the ones that are not so good, those unhappy notes, because with those you can create something more beautiful with your partner. 
All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. Have a wonderful night.